There's a huge amount of research that shows that the hiring process can be biased and unfair and most of the time we don't even mean it to be. Unconscious racism, ageism, sexism, it plays a big role in who gets hired. But there are steps that you can take to recognise and reduce these biases. Where should you start and how can you help others on your team to do the same? Dr. Elsa Zakeng is a scientist and entrepreneur who is currently part of the executive team at recruitment startup JobSeekers. Its primary purpose is to mitigate unconscious bias in the recruitment process and give everyone a chance at all job opportunities, regardless of race, name, ethnicity, gender, or any other factors. She joins me today to tell us more about job seekers and how organizations can ensure that their hiring processes are fair. Welcome Elsa to the show. Thank you, Trish. Thank you for having me. So I have to ask before we get into everything else that we're going to talk about today. You are a scientist with a PhD in infectious diseases and global health. I am sure you get asked day and daily um, about the current COVID situation, as I presume you must have a unique insight into this. What's your take on everything that's happening? And, you know, did you suspect that there was a pandemic around the corner? So that's, yeah, very interesting considering the times we're living in. So for context, my PhD is in infectious diseases and global health. I focused on influenza A and I did some work, I say I did some work very, very vaguely on Ebola during the biggest Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014, where I deployed with the WHO and we went out there for six weeks testing patients for Ebola and malaria. So I spent basically spent the past six years talking about different epidemics, pandemics, what is happening, what could be happening. And it's quite interesting because during all our conversations, we always thought we were due another influenza pandemic. We thought it was going to be an influenza pandemic next. Um, but hey, COVID bit us to it. So that's always quite interesting. But the question is, did we think that? Did I think that we have we had another pandemic due? Yes, I did. Um, did I think it was going to be COVID? No, I did not. Now, the question will always be around how a pandemic is being handled, whether it's a pandemic or an epidemic. Now, that's always going to be up for debate, uh, depending on, obviously, politics and personal public opinion. So, yes, that's basically where I stand on that. Oh, don't tell us we've another one coming. (laughs) And then it's an influenza one. I mean, that would be catastrophic, I think, if an influenza pandemic was about to hit us this winter. So let's let's move quickly on from that. Hopefully not this winter. Let's focus on the positives. (laughs) Well, I think it's... Um, No, so I just wanted to mention, considering the nature of viruses, it's almost inevitable that at some point a virus is going to mutate out of control, out of what we did not plan or see coming, and then we're going to have one. Now the question is always going to be, when is it going to happen? How are we going to react towards this? And that's where, in my personal opinion, we seem to always fail or always fall short. We've had several epidemics and pandemics, whether you're looking back into, I mean, influenza 1918, H1N1, and then you're going Mm -hmm. back into all the different ones we've had. We've had... HIV, we've had um, Ebola severally, but I just feel like at each turn we still act as if it's something that we didn't see coming uh, or almost act as if it's brand new. But it's something that I believe a lot of scientists have predicted and we've run scenarios, but we're just never really truly prepared, are we? So, yeah. I think is it the saying that history condemns you to repeat the things that you fail to learn mm. or something like that mm-hmm. and uh, so like, you know oh what do you mean we're having another pandemic <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay guys we're definitely gonna have another one after this so can you just get your stuff together um no um many of the guests um that join us here on the show are not Mancunian natives and but have found their home here um tell us a bit about you and your path to manchester what was it like so that's what was interesting. 
journey because I did my year in industry. So my first degree was in molecular biology with a year in industry. So I did my year in industry at a biotech company here in Manchester. This was back in 2011, 2012. So I spent a year here and I really loved the city. I took, really took to the city and it was during that year that I actually d decided that I was going to go on and do a PhD. And at the time, I really wanted to go to the Uni of Manchester, well, do a PhD in the Uni of Manchester. But that didn't happen, didn't work out that way. And I ended up going back to Liverpool to do my PhD. But hey, anyone Liverpool listening, I still love Liverpool. It's my, it, Liverpool has my heart. <laughs> um, but it was, I think it was then that I sort of sparked that flame or that interest or that intrigue with Manchester. And literally over the course of my PhD, so about since 2012, I've spent at least twice a month in Manchester, whether it's shopping or restaurant or for an event or when I started my entrepreneurial journey, which at the time I didn't even think it was an entrepreneurial journey. I found Manchester mm. to have more of an ecosystem and people that I could engage with, events that I could go to. So I would literally drive all the way, so 45 minutes to Manchester for an event or to meet with various people. And yeah, through that process, I always knew that once my PhD was done, Manchester was where I wanted to move back to. And here I am now. Here you are. Mm. Um, and that under, that actual entrepreneurial uh, spark actually started at university. If mm. I uh, look back into your uh, LinkedIn profile, because you actually launched a biotech uh, collaborative startup. Tell us about that. Yeah, so 2014 it was and it... I had decided that I did not want to stay in academia. So I set out finding what was my life post PhD going to be like. And during that process, I found, uh, it was, at the time it was called the Oxbridge Roundtable. It was a, I guess it's a, a consulting company based in Manchester. Well, they had branches in Oxford, Cambridge, hence the name and Manchester as well. And during that whole process, I attended the event in Manchester where they were networking with biotech, industry, academia, and just letting students or scientists know that if you did not want to stay in academia, there were other career paths that you could go into. Um, in, and that obviously included spinning out research and going into entrepreneurship. So I attended one of the events, absolutely loved it, com loved it committed to it. Six months after I joined the team, I was going to be head of events. That was the role I had applied for. Six months after I joined the team, they decided to close shop. And that was oh. for various <laughs> reasons. So then we had this new team and we thought, okay, so what do we do now? And we said, well, we're just going to start our own then. And literally that's how it started. And it was called the Northwest Biotech Initiative. And it's still going till date, actually. We always check out the updates and stuff. But it was really, it was very interesting because we ran quite a few events between the University of Manchester and Liverpool on consulting, on entrepreneurship, spinning out your research and engaging with local companies, both consulting and biotech companies on how scientists can gain access to these career paths if they decided not to go into academia, which I always found was a bit ambiguous. To go into academia was almost more straightforward than anything else yeah so yeah that was the start of my entrepreneurial journey yeah and that uh, that bug has has ruined <laughs> and and flourished um but you've you've always had this international grounding in your experience and you touched on a little bit of it there with the world health organization um but i'd love to dive a bit deeper into that because i think it gives a very unique perspective in terms of what we're about to dive into with regards to sort of diversity of thought can you tell us a bit more about your work that you've done you know you know your your international um sort of traveling experience and the different organizations that you worked for along the way yes definitely i think this is why i have to give credit to my parents and my background and this is where we really understand the power of your environment and where you grow up and what you see around yourself so both my parents are scientists my mum is a pharmacist and my dad works for the united nations unaids basically the division or the sector that deals with hiv and aids and is currently director of country director for tanzania so throughout my life growing up, he always worked for the UN AIDS and 
I saw him constantly going from country to country. So we moved from Sierra Leone to um, Ghana, Senegal, now we're currently based in Tanzania. And I literally spent hours with him going on the field, seeing what he was doing and engaging with communities and how we were responding to the different crises well, obviously in his respect was HIV AIDS specifically, what we could be doing at the community level, what, how you could be advocating policies and governments to um, interact, how you were talking, well, how he was talking to the scientific side of it on research. So it was really being at that intersection and bringing in all these different pieces and how together we can affect and change people's lives. So I absolutely loved that. Um, uh, it really took to me, well, I took to it, whichever way, whichever way I want to look at it. Um, so growing up, I ended up working for different international organizations, whether they were voluntary or internships. So I did some work with UNICEF back in Ghana. And at the time we were working with different socioeconomically deprived regions that had been affected by the flood. Um, I did some work with SWA, that was Society for Women Living with AIDS in Africa. Again, that was specifically on HIV and AIDS and how we could support them with both the scientific needs, health needs, and also on the cultural level within the community. Did some work with the International Organization for Migration and how health affects refugees and immigrants and how they're moving um migrating for whatever reasons and how we could support their health within this, these processes and ended up doing some work as well for the WHO and again that obviously reverberated in what I recently did with doing the Ebola outbreak so I think at the back of my mind I had all these different I had this these thought processes because I truly believe that we can all work in silos and everyone is doing an amazing job individually but until we're able to come together and when I say come together I mean government I mean private sector public sector research science and to be able to affect the community and our general change um, for good we would almost always one sector would always be lagging behind the other if that makes sense um so yeah that was that's basically been my experience with from that aspect of things so it really affects how i think about everything now even with within the entrepreneurial journey you see one department affects the other obviously one sector affects the other and that obviously goes back and reverberates throughout society yes and hence our our repeated pandemic issues um, <laughs> um, and it explains a little bit about um, you know what some of the things that you're actually doing currently and we're going to dive into now your sort of your Manchester um, life and um, you're one of the founders of Burn can you tell us a bit about that and the work that you do here in the city region Right, so the Black United, so Burn stands for the Black United Representation Network, and it's a group of absolutely exceptional Black leaders within the Manchester or Greater Manchester area. These are all business leaders that's within engineering, social media. We all have our fortes that have come together to form these sort of organisation whereby we can affect change um, within our communities from a specific standpoint. And the standpoint is addressing sort of procurement to gain access to contracts, to gain access to funds, to gain access to finances, so that these can be funneled through directly to um, these diverse communities. Um, Burn was founded, I believe, right almost right in the middle of the pandemic and it was directly as a result of these feelings that we have had previously and obviously the boiling pot of all the events that have happened over the summer um, mm -hmm. within the different movements for us to really say when we're looking at different procurement systems how come or why is it that you see the same people getting the same contracts or the same people getting the same outcomes whereas there are loads of different um, suppliers from minority groups minority ethnic suppliers that can do the jobs have applied for these different contracts but somehow never get it 
And Mm -hmm. there are all these processes that are put in place that I personally believe hinder um, however many people can apply for it and however many people can do the job. So it's a question questions that we're sort of asking us, some of these processes that are in place, are they necessary? How do they truly affect the capability for somebody to do the job? That's number one. And two, are they, how biased are they? Or are they unbiased? Are you literally, is it a case of just old age nepotism where you're going back and giving something to your friend because you've known them and you've worked with them before? Or are you giving everybody an equal chance? Um, I've personally had the experience where I've applied for certain things and they're asking for all these years of experience and I've stated in several applications where I said well we are a startup this is going to be a pilot and you get all then they're like no we're only going to give it to somebody who has x amount of years of experience and it's the classic excuse Mm -hmm. it's the classic case of well how am I going to get experience if you do not give me the chance or where else am I going to or how else am I going to get the experience to be able to qualify for um to be able to qualify for these contracts um we Mm -hmm. see then job opportunities you go for job opportunities and they ask you for 15 years of experience and you're thinking well i just got out of uni how am i supposed to get that um and Mm -hmm. i believe that these things trickle throughout and limit opportunities for certain groups of people so burn is really challenging that and working side by side with the community to be able to make sure that everybody sort of gets a piece of the pie really Nice. Um, and hopefully, you know, incentives like job uh, Kickstarter um, might help open up some of those opportunities and motivate employers to look at, you know, certainly the younger age groups for, for opportunities like that. Um, now, moving on to job seekers, um, you joined the um, the founding team in 2018 and we spoke to Jamal Brathwaite um, on his uh, podcast way back in episode seven um so um remind us about job seekers what it is and you know what's been going on for the last two years how things been going right so job seekers is my adopted baby i always put it that way um <laughs> and job seekers really is a startup that it with an aim and i would say that it's at the core of who Jamal is as he's a CEO and founder but as the core of who we are as I've obviously joined the founding team and obviously one would say that I've been biased saying this but bear in mind that I didn't know Jamal before joining the team and I've got to know him over the time um, truly is something that he believes in and job seekers is aimed at mitigating unconscious bias at the sourcing and screening stage of recruitment um, to increase diversity and inclusion, ensure that there is an, there's a culture add and a culture alignment between candidate and employer, and the end result will be decreasing churn, ensuring that workplaces are more inclusive, but also increasing um, innovation. The statistics are there, such as you know diverse teams outperform their competitors by over forty percent in profitability, but somehow in some in some areas because. Obviously, there are some companies that are doing exceptional with their diversity, whether that be gender, ethnicity, LGBTQ, whatever that may be. But in some companies, you still see that there's a sort of struggle um, to increase this diversity. I know the CEO of is it the CEO of Wells Fargo recently came under um, what I say fire or Twitter Twitter backlash in general because he stated that um, there was that they struggled to find black talent. Um, to fill some of the job opportunities there I know and then that's that's the the old age um, in my opinion excuse exactly (laughs) like really you checked everywhere there's Uh, nobody have you met my friend Elsa Mm. who literally shames me with all of her civicness and her amazing qualifications and all that have you met her (laughs) so it's and there's so many other companies that say that or do not publicly say it or say it behind closed doors or think that at least. And it's realizing that there's so many, I can't even say, I can't even emphasize this enough. There are millions of talented talent out there who are diverse in so many different ways. And it is up to you as the employer to ensure that your talent pool is diverse, to ensure that your talent pool is reaching out and getting out to as many people as possible so job seekers is really out there to 
increase the diversity in the talent pool, help employers to reach out to these different diverse audiences, and again, hire in the most, at least in the most unbiased way in the, during the vetting process. So you asked in the past two years, what have we been up to? So at the end of last year, we won um, a competition, so we won 100,000 euros, and that was the 360 Lab Accelerator competition. Um, we thank you and um, we took part in the GCHK and Wire Accelerator that was the first one based up in Manchester we pitched at the palace then um, this year in April 2020 we launched a platform the beta web app um, so that's jobseekers.co.uk for anyone listening you can check it out and so far we have been growing steadily despite the pandemic and obviously the situations that we find ourselves in um, when it comes to employment, it's not the best because obviously it's very uncertain. Um, but hey, that's what we're trying to do, get as many people back into work in the most unbiased way. So recently we won the Entrepreneurship World Cup finals for the UK and we will be representing the United Kingdom in the global EWC finals in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Um, so that's exciting at the moment and taking up a lot of our time as we prepare for it to put our best foot forward. Um, we have a potential to win, well, everybody has a potential to win um, $500,000 as the first prize, 250k and then 100k. So we're hoping to get a piece of that pie <laughs> some way or the other, somewhere or the other. And we're also pitching at the MSD UK semifinals tomorrow. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, then I'm honored that you've taken time out because I know how much time you need to 100% spend on that. So, yeah, that's fun. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's a there's a World Cup for entrepreneurship. I know, <laughs> I know. It's quite United Kingdom, United Kingdom. <laughs> that's literally how I felt um, because you literally meet entrepreneurs that are being amazing. So the past two days we've had boot camps um, with the EWC team. Um, obviously been virtual and online and literally the startups that I'm thinking oh my god you guys are amazing all around the world from be it Pakistan mm -hmm. to Mexico to Australia and it's just been amazing meeting these different people who are still trying to make the world a better place but obviously obviously impact plus profit um, because we can't make impact without some money um, that's something that yeah. I have to remember all the time and Yes, it's just really been insightful just being around that. You just learn and grow so much. So, yeah, it's been very busy, exciting, but, you know, that's what we signed up for. But rewarding as well. Mm. Um, now, you just touched on um, some uh, issues um, which uh, companies imply that the, the problems in recruitment is that there aren't enough you know, there aren't enough black people to, <laughs> um, um, but like, let's set that completely aside because that's total nonsense. Um, tell us a bit about what are the real problems that are existing in the recruitment processes um, that organizations really need to address if they want to make actual sustainable, meaningful change. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think... Where do you start with that? I know. <laughs> I'm just thinking, which way do I go? Should I just list a long list of complaints? No. So let's. I'll start off with the talent pool, ensuring that organisations reach out to as many, uh, to as diverse a talent pool as possible, and that means looking at where you're advertising or your job opportunities, looking at how you're advertising these job opportunities, and um, looking at who you're partnering with, looking at who, which community event, or are you doing community events? Um, and which areas are these play, are these events held at? And how do you really ensure that everybody has access to this? And it's not easy, but if you just do the work, you would find it. And we're obviously doing the work because that's something that we pride ourselves in. But you have to be committed to ensuring that you want to change your workplace environment. Um, I think the next thing is, yes, you have this great talent pool, this diverse talent pool, but we have to remember the new trendy word, which obviously wasn't new to, to us, but everyone's now talking about unconscious bias or the biases that exist, is remembering that as human beings, we all have an unconscious bias. We all have a bias. And when it comes to recruitment, we have so many biases such as like, highest like, or affinity bias, or you might be in an interview situation, or even just looking at a CV and 
let's say me for example i went to the university of liverpool and instantly i see that a candidate went to the university of liverpool instantly i have an instant oh they went to where i went to and even that just that one second or split second thought process could influence how i look at their cv do i then start making it easier for them do i then start giving them passes and say oh they don't meet this but i think i want to go put them to the next stage or do i even in an interview situation do i ask them easier questions or i ask them harder questions so it's just making sure that as employers one thing that i've read that some employees have put in place is having a checklist in interview situations that you can ensure that you're not biased but when you're looking at let's say 500 cvs to one job because i believe at the moment now well initially it was about 250 to 300 cvs per job application that employers were receiving and now that has almost doubled or tripled even with in the current pandemic from a hiring perspective I personally don't believe that anybody can tell me that they looked through 500 CVs and they gave each and every one equal consideration without bias. Like, yeah. I want to meet that yeah. person. Because... Even con- even just constant, even if you were the most unbiased or un- uh, unconscious biased aware person, just your concentration. You know, if you are the CV that's being considered at 40 minutes after you've started looking at CVs, you are less likely to get the attention of the recruiter exactly. because they're tired. Exactly. And I think that's really where job seekers sort of fit in because with the job seekers platform, um, we align the candidates to the employers based on their competence to the job role. So obviously can you do the job, so skills, education, years of experience, whatever that job may require. But also do you align with the company's culture? And we well the platform produces a percentage fit score which the employer sees anonymously so the employer doesn't see name gender anything that may cause a form of bias but what the employer sees on their dashboard is maybe these 500 cvs that have been um ranked according to their suitability to both the job opportunity and the company culture i think that's almost fairer or easier on the manager to then go okay so i have these i don't know 100 people who seem to meet the mark or who I'm interested in and then you start narrowing down to okay maybe I want to just focus on the top 10 or the top five and I want to have a conversation with them or take them to interview stage I think that process is fairer on both the hiring manager and the you know and the candidate who's looking for the job opportunities um so in that sense you know that's definitely something that I know that employers struggle with, but in general, I think it's just people who are willing to put in the work because again, you know, there's the cost in the recruitment process, traditional recruitment on average costs about 4,000 pounds per head. The cost of one bad hire could go right up until 15,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds, that's a lot of money. So being able to reduce the risk on those costs spent right at the early stage, but ensure that um, you have you still maintain the quality. Um, that's something that is very important. And yes, plug job seekers does that, or at least supports an employer to do that. But finally, I think it's very important for employers who are committing, especially in this moment, um, to diverse and inclusive workforces. Let's ensure that it's not performative. I have to state that. Let's ensure that your workplaces are truly inclusive, and you're not say you but as an employer you're not just doing that for image but you're doing that because you truly believe in what diversity and inclusion stands for and i'm not just saying this from a race perspective i'm saying this for any perspective make sure that your workplaces are truly open if you say you have an open door policy let it truly be an open door policy um, let everybody be able to speak their mind without being a without being without fear of judgment and we rem- and have to remember that it's not just, um, what's what I'm looking for? It's not just verbal um, things that you may say. It's nonverbal communication. It's um, how are you looking at your employees or the candidates? Are you giving them body language that makes them feel that they're not welcome to, talk, you know, into the space, or giving them body language that makes them feel like they're not able to say what they truly mean? So it's really just rethinking everything from what you say and what you do not say. And I end there. 
Yeah, I think it's a daily, a constant challenge for us mm. all. And um, I think the other thing to say is that, you know, we're talking about it and we all do it. And it, if you catch yourself doing it, mm. I guess that's, you know, just be kind to yourself, but just note it and make sure, do you know what I mean, learn from it. Because we can all say a throwaway co- comment in, in the moment and not realize the impact that's maybe had on that other person. But when you do realize, acknowledge it exactly. and, and address it and own it. And, and that's it. That's OK. You won't get criticized for that. Instead, I'm sure the other person would appreciate it. You know, would appreciate that you've probably stated or you caught yourself. I say, oh, I'm, even if you just say, oh, I'm not. I hope that didn't come across this way. I wasn't. I didn't mean it that way. Or just clarification yeah. or being, being able to speak quite right. openly. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've we've covered a lot there about, um, you know, some of the challenges and then some of the things that the organizations can do. Um, but have you noticed, a, 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 you know, has there been a, a noticeable shift? You know, our organizations, because I think this is one of the things, you know, you touched on it there about it being performative and just lip service. And, um, you know, we've both been to many events where everybody talks about how important it is, but then they do nothing. There's nothing about it. But have you seen a change in terms of how, you know, organizations or individuals are approaching inclusivity over the last few years? What are some of the sort of key milestones that you've noticed? I would say that I've seen organizations definitely speak about it more. Definitely organize more panels, definitely, I guess, seek to inquire what or how to create a, a diverse and inclusive workforce. I know, for example, the when the gender pay gap was enforced, that definitely really pushed a lot of companies and employers to address that or see where they stood on, on that with that, with the gender pay gap and how to address it within their companies. Um, but I think that we would... I mean, change is incremental, right? And I am very weary to say that yes or no. I've definitely felt a difference, but now I want to see the proof. I want to see the hard concrete proof. And I think that would really start coming out when we start seeing things like a race pay gap report. Let's ensure that all companies, I know you know that that's something that's currently being lobbied for. I haven't recently checked if that has been enforced for, I know that at least the 50, 50, 100 or 50, 50, 250. Um, once we're able to start seeing those kind of results um, and that's results that are true to what they are. So when I say that, I mean, for example, when it was the gender pick, I remember there was an instance where some companies would p- include um women in their data where they weren't they were skewed the data in the sense of if you're looking at women in senior leadership or you know project manager or management level um, leadership they would sort of skew the data by including women who may not be necessarily in those at those levels or sort of change the criteria to fit um specific um to to, to fit that narrative but i mean ensuring that the, the criteria is clear if we're looking at what's the gender pay gap or the race pay gap for women in C-suite positions, let it, let's look at that just within those departments. If we're looking at the organization as a whole, let's look at that within the organization as a whole. So I think that's when we would really see what sort of change has happened um, and the hardcore facts. Until then, it's just all going to be a feeling, right? It will be a feeling depending on what we see online, what our social circles are, what we see in the news. Um, but is that really the truth? We wouldn't know. It will be different perceptions. But um, maybe this is the scientist and me talking. Like, let's see, let's see the proof. I was going to say, <laughs> it's the scientist and you. You're like, until I see it, show me the proof. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> all of it sounds nice. But yeah, it's a bit fluffy. Let's nail it down. And you're absolutely right. Be clear. Let's compare whether it's the race pay gap at C-suite or the gender pay or or race and gender, you know, the needle in the haystack of needles. Um, let's really compare those and own it. It's just going back. If, you know, if they spent more as much time just owning it and actually having an honest look inside rather than how can we skew, <laughs> let's invest time to skew in these figures. Um, 
I could go off on a segue here about a podcast I'm listening to about a certain global um, fast food chain, but I won't. Um, <laughs> that'll take so completely off topic. Um, but it's like invest time in uh, recognizing the issues in, in your business and, and addressing them in an open and authentic way. And people will be receptive to it. Nobody's looking to, you know, I don't know, hung, drawn, quarter or whatever people. They just want, people just want to see meaningful change. Um, and speaking of meaningful change, um, you are also a co-founder of another initiative that is aiming to do the same in the technology sector. Yeah. Uh, I do not know where you have time to relax, but... Um, <laughs> I don't. That's the problem. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah, but I, I don't think you'd enjoy it. <laughs> you wouldn't get any buzz out of it. I don't, you know, that's the really bad thing about me. I don't, I, I find it hard just sitting still. I feel like yeah. there's a problem or there's something wrong. I feel yeah. like I constantly I'm, have to I'm be I'm doing wasting, something. I'm wasting my time here. Do do? <laughs> Listen, I, I'm, I'm in that boat, so don't worry. Okay. Um, but Solidarity in Tech, tell us about some, give us some insight into its, its roots and what it's hoping to achieve, um, Solidarity in Tech. Okay, so... Again, I joined Solidarity in Tech in 2018. So Jamal's the founder um, and I joined as co-founder and really SIT in short um, is aimed at increasing the diversity and inclusion within the STEM sector. So science, technology, engineering and maths um, as it pertains to gender, ethnicity and neurodiversity. So SIT truly started off as community events um, trying to bring together the community to talk about um, different issues that people were facing within the it started really in the tech space within the tech space um, and really also just knowing other people who were in the tech space and just building that community and that allyship and just knowing who was doing what and where you could potentially turn to if you needed help for one thing or the other or if you wanted to support someone else so now it's really just growing into being a resource for both candidates on the community so providing training upskilling activities and um, courses that's sort of what we're really focusing on at the moment so that people who are interested in specific stem areas can go or can take these courses and be able to really translate that um into into careers or go into those careers so one ex example that we've been working on for a while, but I'm really hoping that that can come to fruition soon. So we know the guys at Digital Interruptions, so Saskia, Copelands and Jay, I think they're absolutely amazing people for what they're doing at DI. They're Manchester-based as well, and their ethics and integrity and what they really stand for. So we've been trying to put together this training course that focuses on cybersecurity, because again, we find that that's one area in, techno in tech where it's not that diverse so that candidates or people with the community who are interested in getting into these spaces can take this this course and really be able to gain at least interviews or jobs as be it cybersecurity consultants or junior penetration testers we've not been able to kick take that off the ground yet due to a lack of funds um we've applied for quite a few well i say quite a few probably two grants now which have not been successful but fingers crossed um, we're going to get one successful one soon but that's really an example of what we're trying to do on the training level but I think on the flip side as well it's one just creating that sense of belonging where um, people can just come together and celebrate different events so for example one of our really big events have been sponsored by you guys thank you Trish Tech Manchester and UK Fast in the past two years and that's a celebration of Black History Month and it's usually just an event where we come together we have a panel discussion we have some food music I would just talk about um, different topics really depending on the times we live in um, and at the moment recently we actually recently got a national launch national lottery fund a grant to be able to do some training courses so we're looking into a bit of marketing and um, a bit of 3d printing actually that's more science-based and that's in partnership with um quite a, an expert in 3d printing and that's all around what we obviously saw with how 3d printing has supported um the covid19 response and again that's my science last engineering hat going on but yeah, really it's just 
both a place for training, upskilling, but also just building a community where we can all come together and celebrate our differences. But obviously also our similarities, which is the things that brought us together, STEM. Yeah, um, it's that uniqueness. We're all unique and we all have intersections of different things that make us who we, who we are. Exactly. I think it's quite unfortunate that sometimes we get hung up on criticising our differences, but rather than celebrating it and just, you know, coming together and learning from one another and what our differences are. I think um, things like the Black Lives Matter movement have maybe helped move the needle um, on that. And um, I'd like to touch on that um, from a positive perspective, um, but also then obviously reflect on sort of the you know, the negative side of how, you know, how that has all come about. Um, because you've also been a victim of, of racism um, mm. here in the UK. Um, so let's talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, first of all, and what impact that that has had on the minority community in Manchester, I suppose, if that's your sort of more real experience, you know, more sort of local experience of it. So the Black Lives Matter movement, um, again, for context, I'll probably go back to, I first just found out about the Black Lives Matter movement back in 2016. Um, and I remember protesting in 2016. Again, I was based in Liverpool at the time. And I cannot remember for the life of me what exactly had happened. But I know there was another shooting, mm. unfortunately, in the States that kicked that off. Do you know, that's just, it's almost sad that, you know, there wasn't, it, there's that many that you're like I can't you know that's you know it's anyway continue sorry exactly um so I remember protesting on quite a few different occasions so when we got to 2020 and we I'm sure by now a lot of us or if not all of us have seen saw the George Floyd um the killing really of George Floyd on camera to be quite honest that video I did not watch it for a while because every time I tried, I got to a point where I just could not watch it anymore. It literally brought me to tears. And what was interesting was the days following that, so many of my friends within the community, again, who are of, predominantly of ethnic minority, we all felt the scent of being emotionally and mentally drained and being emotionally and mentally tired of feeling the way we feel or going it's almost like you're walking and you're going into a situation or even on the streets not knowing what you're going to receive or even thinking that feeling of helplessness thinking okay what do I do so for me I was thinking well 2016 I protested here we are um I signed petitions I so you're, you're sort of going through the list of things that you've done and you're thinking how can I help to solve the situation or when is it going to end and I think a lot of us can attest to having that feeling of helplessness or trying to find the next thing to do and there's so many things that this is by no means trying to say that there's not enough that anybody can do there's, there are a lot of initiatives out there but right at the start of when it happened it was educating ourselves on what it is that needs to be done so the negative impact of that is one thing to realize how it affects different communities it's it puts stress on you know on your body it put gives people sleepless nights i know people who couldn't sleep or who had disturbed sleep because of it you're asking mothers my sister has a little boy who's two years old in the states and you're asking mothers to think about how am i going to raise my son to make sure that the situation doesn't happen to them um but then i think for me it's also the it was interesting seeing the response in the UK where everyone was like, oh, the UK is not, it, it, you know, that doesn't happen in the UK. That's, uh, we're, we're not racist. And I'm like, okay, sure, <laughs> sure. And it just reminded me back to, um, there's this rapper Santon Dave and one of his performances that he said, well, even the least racist is still racist. And I think it's just remembering that it's a different culture. So I personally find obviously the culture in the UK versus US is different. And the UK is more... Um, I would say PC or at least it tried to be um, or tries to be very politically correct and you never really see it in your face so you I wouldn't I don't think you ever see anybody come to my face I don't expect anyone to come to my face and call me the n-word for example but the experience that you obviously stated that happened to me when I was in Liverpool I think was my first or second year of uni of my first degree I was running, I was just went for a jog with my friend. She's from Ghana, but born and raised in London. We, she was in Liverpool as well doing her 
medical school she was a med student we decided to go out for a run and specifically i remember we we're on smith down road anyone who knows liverpool knows this smith down road where it just ran past the asta and we're running back home a car just drove past us wound down the glass pelted us on and then with tomatoes and literally i just remember hearing saying go back to where you came from and this is something that again yes they didn't call me the n-word but obviously that is still racist where I, I remember just standing there and thinking really did that just happen what am i supposed to do now <laughs> like am i supposed to run am i safe what do i do um but at least i was not alone so and again bear in mind i didn't particularly grow up in the UK so at least I had her who had grown up in the UK where she said you know what let's just carry on running home let's just carry on on our jog home we'll be fine whatever have you or if anything happens we can call whosoever um but it's that reminder I'll put it is that constant reminder of no matter how long you've lived here you don't belong is that constant reminder of no matter how much I may have contributed to the economy to society to um communities there's always somebody or there might always be somebody to remind me that well but you're not you don't belong here and i think that's really the negative impact that sometimes people don't realize that when you might make all these snide comments the sort of thought process you might send somebody down on may not necessarily be the best so that's definitely something that we should all think about or be mindful of whenever you speak to people on whatever topics that may be but on the positive side uh, which has been the bittersweet part of it, the positive side. I was so, so pleased, I cannot even tell you, to see the demographic of people who went out on the streets to protest. As I looked through all the pictures and I looked through all the protests, I thought to myself, wow. Um, considering that, again, I remember I posted it in 2016, considering that, just seeing the change that happened in the four years, and that's just in the demographic of people coming out, I just thought, okay maybe we are onto something maybe there is change there is change it is incremental uh, maybe more people are actually deciding to put their necks on the line and i know that it was in the midst of a pandemic um, everyone criticized that and what should happen what shouldn't happen but i'm saying but this is the think about it on the other side if someone is willing to risk their life in the middle of a pandemic to challenge something that really they risk their life for every single day that really shows you how deep it hurts and how impactful and how serious it is within um for these people for our people for me do you know what i mean so um yeah that's definitely been that obviously the ripple effect of that has been a lot of companies governments um institutions companies and communities reaching out wanting to support the diverse talent and support minorities support ethnics and really trying to look at themselves in the mirror and see what they're doing um that has been really good a lot of people some people have put their mo their money where their mouths is so obviously um well be it employing people that were you know that are equally good at the job but are diverse talent and all of this that has been really good to see but that's where i goes back to my previous point that we saw a lot of you know there was that there was that tuesday that was a blackout tuesday and everyone on instagram i remember looking at my instagram had a black square up and everyone was like black blackout tuesday black lives matter and all of this stuff and it was interesting that off the back of that you were seeing a lot of companies that had posted blackout tuesday that were being called out for being racist and that brings back the point of performative um, actions or people just doing it to for image sake and not truly believing in what they are doing so yes um yeah so that's just say ripple effect's been great but let's just make sure that it's genuine yeah it's like they sort of i guess the principle of black history month you know it mm. becomes very topical for the month of october um but really it's it's an all year three, six, five, seven days a week, 24 seven um, conversation has to be forefront. Um, because if you take your eye off it for a second, you'll, you know, you'll find yourself in a less um, positive place. Um, and of course, it is Solidarity in Tech's third birthday. Third birthday. I know. Yes. I know. Gosh, going so quickly. <laughs> I know. Um, and, you know, we've had some really meaningful um, sort of purpose led events where we've uh, engaged with so many people across the 
uh, GM region and also transatlantic with our friends at Techs of Colour in Atlanta. So we've thoroughly enjoyed working with you on that initiative and uh, look forward to continuing to do so. Now, my goodness, we've got through so much. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but we are coming to the end of how we're going to fix the world, Elsie <laughs> and I. Um, but let's talk about kids. Let's talk about STEM. Let's talk about especially girls in STEM. There is a huge backwards heading statistic and um it's so important to have um positive role models like you it's a huge help um and i'm hoping that there are many parents listening to this who will be like i gotta get my kid into stem um what more do you think needs to be done what can we do to get more girls to study stem either in school well actually they do study it in school and then they give it up it's higher education that we see the kind of the cliff edge isn't it you know and then you know what do we do to help them fairly access those career opportunities you know there's loads of research particularly during lockdown how women researchers have been discriminated against and how their research papers being published have fallen off a cliff which means their careers are damaged and men's submissions have gone up because they've got more time on their hands because mum's looking after the kids and they've got nothing to do at home so you know where do we go with that Trish, you're just touching topics that literally hurt my heart that I literally talk to about all my sisters every day and I'm like, this life is not fair. Um, no, so if we start with, I'll start off with the girls in STEM. So something interesting that I realised, again, when I, I think I was on a panel a few years ago, this was at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and we we're talking about STEM careers and getting girls into STEM. Something that we realised were all four of the panellists, all women, we realised that we all had gone to all-girls secondary schools. Hmm. And we thought, oh, isn't that interesting? And that was because someone in the audience asked a question and the question that was asked was, do we think that going to all-girls um or single-sex um, secondary schools or high schools plays a fact in however many girls continue into um, STEM. And we looked around and then we had we realised that, oh, all of us had actually gone to um, all-girls secondary schools and high schools. And I, it just clicked in me, or at least it sparked something in my mind where I thought, hang on, could there be something there? And I went on to ask a lot of my friends who have gone on to be medics, engineers, all of that, that may be, that do they think that this had a part to play in them staying in STEM? And it's interesting because I think staying in STEM, because as you said, everyone, a lot of girls do it at school. But when you, the continuation, I think has an impact with home. So the family life and how that, how much that is encouraged at home. Um, and I think secondly, who you're around in school is that are you being encouraged or not? And I think that the nature sometimes of being in secondary school and you know, you're 11, 12, you've just started off and you're in a class. Um, if you answer a question rightly or wrongly, um, sometimes you might feel shy or you might not want to seem like you're not smart enough or you might recoil into a shell and then decide that you do not want to go ahead with that. Or you might get teased um, if you had a wrong answer and that can put people off. Um, from continuing with it with a specific subject so I think those are just some interesting topics that I'm just throwing out there but this is all to say that is remembering that whenever we're encouraging girls into STEM really it's staying in STEM and at a secondary school level we should be encouraged that or the girls should be encouraged in class that it's okay to fail or it's okay to have a wrong answer Mm -hmm. That is science. Science is uh, it's, it's experiments. We start off with mm-hmm. the hypothesis and you go off on a journey to prove it or disprove it. So failure should be encouraged. And instead we feel shame or we feel, oh, I, that was wrong, so I shouldn't do it. And that's not to say that this is all girls. I'm saying that sometimes that is something that could happen. And then it's internalized. And then before you know it, you're dropping out because, oh, I don't like the subject. But is it really that you don't like the subject or you just don't like how you felt in a specific moment? So it's being able to differentiate between those two aspects and being intentional enough to make sure that the girls are encouraged that no matter what is said or no matter what happens, they should pursue this. um, They should pursue STEM. Um, I think it's 
the old adage of we could have several it's, it's a whole different podcast on boys behaviors girls behaviors <laughs> what what is who is more prone to what um but it's just knowing that as it stands girls should be more encouraged to do to continue pursuing that i think some of the things that you just said there were really interesting and you know i think it's those things you know girls are naturally have a higher level of uh, emotional intelligence um you know particularly in those earlier years and um we probably have a much higher level of self-awareness um which are which are skills and um attributes that are becoming more the sort of in-demand leadership skills um you know as we go through our careers and as we all get a bit older and a bit more stupid because our and obviously our regular intelligence goes down um I'm very emotionally intelligent. <laughs> Not so that's much a to, skill. <laughs> that's it. Um, but it's maybe that's you know it's ha- it's that you're 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 tapped into those emotions and you understand how they feel. Whereas perhaps, you know, one of the things that because it develops later in boys, um, uh, as they grow into young men, that that actually is an advantage almost for them because they may not be that good at. Um, you know sciences or STEM or whatever but they're like hey we'll just crack on and do it anyway you know it's interesting such an yes it's totally different different podcast um so we won't delve into that any further now um but yeah it's encouragement uh at home and in school um I can see how the point of all girls where you're less likely to see that teasing um and you feel in a safe and we, we see it ourselves in the tech equity training program. You know, it's um, for people who self-identify as women and non-binary. And, you know, there is a difference. There's a different dynamic in the classroom that when it's when it's when it's all women or all feminine um, perspectives um, versus having a, a mixed bag where, you know, you see it, you know, you know, girls are less likely to put their hands up to ask questions whenever it's in a room. You know, when I do school tours, you see it all the time. Um, so, um, we're coming to the end of the podcast and I've really enjoyed, uh, spending time talking to you today. Um, but we always like to end with a little bit of advice. So for founders and recruiters, um, to make sure that they have a fair and, uh, representative hiring process, what would be some sort of key tangible takeaways that they could take from today's conversation and go and apply into their businesses tomorrow Mm. interesting i think i would start off with saying look in the mirror and that is saying look at look for your own unconscious bias so there's several tests out there i know that there's a harvard one that states on that's on unconscious bias and sort of identify what you're more leaning towards or not leaning towards so at least you know what your blind spot is and once you're able to find that out what your own blind spot is you realize that you as an individual as a human being you perpetrate that within your own environment whether that be at home or at work or especially if you're in a position of power so looking at that and analyzing your own workforce and looking to see if at any point you might have put that or projected that within your own workforce unknowingly and then obviously that's the first part identifying if there is an issue and what the issue is and then obviously the second part is how do we move forward and that really comes down to one um, your talent pool as I've stated how are you hiring where are you hiring what are you doing to make sure that it is diverse two do you have a sounding board or somebody who can check that these processes are equal and diverse and i think three really looking at how inclusive your workplace is and that is is do you have processes in place and what are the policies in place to making sure that absolutely everybody that would be hired and will feel included because there's no point in hiring going the extra length and hiring someone who is and I say extra length is really not that difficult but going and making sure that your you know your talent pool is diverse and then hiring the your diverse talent and then they come in and stay for a month or three months because they don't feel included that was all just a waste of everybody's time so just making sure that your workplaces are included and they feel welcomed enough 
everyone feels welcomed enough to stay in the process longer. So, yeah. Nice. Um, that's really good advice to um, finish on this afternoon. Um, we've covered a lot of very meaty, uh, serious topics, but um, hopefully shared that in a way that is relatable to many people listening. And for anyone that has been struggling with the challenges of um, inclusivity, um, having a welcome workplace, hopefully Elsa's advice will give you a better night's sleep. And obviously we're happy to talk to anybody if we can support them in any way. So don't be shy to reach out. So, yes. Perfect. Thank you. Fast Forward is a weekly interview podcast brought to you by Tech Manchester, an incubator for digital and creative startups in the Northwest. I'm your host, Patricia Keating. The podcast is produced by Sarah Belli, audio editing by Jamie Gowenlock, and music by Parma Violence. If you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line at info at techmanchester.co.uk or follow us on any of our social channels. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, all under Tech Manchester. Tech Manchester.